Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. <laughs> Gone with that mic in your hand. It's time for school. Rock school with your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. I mean, you give a musician anything. You know, you you work this by hitting it with a stick. It's only a matter of time before he or she said, wonder if I hit it with a dog. That's right. What it would sound like. If I <laughs> threw it down the steps, what would it sound like? We're gonna find a way to do something with it. So class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show here on the Rock School Radio Network. I'm Joe Burns. You are... I am Tammy Burns. Now, look, you asked me as you looked at the script for 7 Days and 70 Seconds, how do you pronounce that M-O-O-G? How would you pronounce it just looking at it? Mm, I would say Moog. It is Moog. Most people say Moog, but it is Robert Moog on January 24th, 1970. Dr. Robert Moog unveils the Mini Moog synthesizer, which, let's be honest, how do you not say it as Austin Powers? I present Mini Moog, one of the first portable synth keyboards, $2,000 it cost all the way back in 1970. Now, here's the thing. Mm Mm-hmm. The idea of a synthesizer is so, I don't know, commonplace today. I have two of them. There's one there. I got a Yamaha. Right. And I have another one under here, which is only used to trip samples. So I could make this a piano, uh, an organ, a harpsichord. I could make it drums, anything I wanted. Right. As long as there's a sample, it goes on. But there was a time when there really was... Very few synthesized sounds out there. Now, a lot of people will say to you that this guy, Dr. Robert Moog, by the way, a doctorate in electrical physics from Cornell. Get out. Invented the synthesizer when that's absolutely not true. There were synthesizers previous to him. However, the synthesizers previous to him worked like amplification. They were running through all of these different uh, amplified uh, tubes to attempt to get sounds and things like that. It was Moog who figured out the idea of a theremin being applied to creating a sound. Now, if you don't know what a theremin is, here's 15 seconds of a theremin. You've probably seen it. It's got a vertical and then a horizontal. And where you put your finger inside of that field, it creates a a sound. Here's Over the Rainbow on a theremin. Listen. Okay, enough of that. Well, in 1963, this fella, 
Robert Moog receives a grant of $16,000 from the New York State Small Business Association, uses it, and comes up with an idea, hey, if I could take an oscillator and have it oscillate, well, it's an oscillator, so it will oscillate at a specific frequency, I could make it create a tone. And you say, are you going to explain that? Yes. In mind-numbing detail, I lecture on this in my audio classes. It is really the first commercially available synthesizer that is what we think of today. So for an hour, I want to talk to you about the Moog synthesizer. We'll move into the Mini Moog. But if you're shaking your head going, I really don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to play a song for you that I know you've heard and you think to yourself, well, that's just a silly novelty song. Yes, it was, but it was a hit, number two, and it was created on one of Moog's early synthesizers. This is a song called Popcorn by a band called Hot Butter. No, they didn't have any other hits. We'll come back, we'll tell you about the Moog synthesizer, but look, this is what it did on Rock School. Talking about Moog, specifically the Moog synthesizer created by Dr. Robert A. Moog. He comes up with this idea that if you have an oscillator and you trip it with something, meaning you turn it on, mm -hmm. you could do it with a switch, but you could also do it with what looked like a piano key. Now, again, there were synthesizers out there, but they were all analog, which means the sound was created by a machine. It wasn't created by ones and zeros. Now, it would be in the 1980s, specifically 1980, that the first digital synthesizer comes out. That's the Yamaha DX7. And you say, well, how would I know that? Do you remember the song Take On Me by AHA? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's all done by that Yamaha. Do you know Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins? Yes. No. That, that, that's created by the DX7. Wow. But you see, that's digital. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how Moog did it. It was done with a VCO, which is a... I don't know how to say it. It is a, 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 a variable item that depending on the amount of electricity you gave it, it would it would produce a sound. It would produce what is equal to a sine wave. So in order to understand this, let's let's talk about two things. 
I mentioned a sine wave. If I take a sine wave and I make it produce a tone, uh-huh. for example, an A, I want it to produce an A because, you know, all musical notes are named A, B, C, D, E, F, right, up to G. Right. So if I wanted to produce an A, I needed to move at a hertz cycle of 440 or 220 or 880, and we'll get into this in a second. So I need to figure out if I press this button and I trip this oscillator, it's going to move, it's going to oscillate at 440 times per second. That is what we consider an A. Why? Because we decided it is. All right. I don't know how else to say it. And I'm going to get into that in a second. I know some of you are going, don't you mean the Stuttgart A? Yes, I do. And we'll get into it in just one second. But if I press another button, it will trip another oscillator that will play at a different frequency, number of cycles per second, which will create a different tone. For example, this... I'll play it for about three seconds. This is an A in a sine wave. Ready? Go. There. That's an A. And it's not anything you want to listen to. No. It's singularly the note. Right. When you listen to my voice, it's not just, I get it, I can sing an A. A. I don't know what that was. It might have been an A. It might not have been. But I have an entire sound envelope. So what these oscillators did was simply create the sine waves of these items. So here's a sine wave of an A, here's a sine of a B, here's a sine wave of a C, blah, 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 blah. When you applied it to music, it created a sound that no instrument could play. And one lady, and I'm trying to get her name here, Wendy Carlos, She created an album in 1968. She was really the first one to hit it. She called it Switched on Bach. And what she did was take Bach known tunes and played it basically with a keyboard that tripped sine waves. That's the Moog synthesizer. Wow. So here is about 10, 15 seconds of Wendy Carlos playing a Bach piece on this. When it came out, Newsweek magazine just went, and they called it the Steinway of the future. Little did they know. So here's a little bit of that. Go. Okay. Fair enough. You could tell it was Bach. It was in a fugue. Bach plays in those fugues where there's one note that's kind of droning between every other one. So what was the first pop song to use this thing? Believe it or not, it was the Monkees. What? The Monkees were a lot more... People put down the Beach Boys, and I want to shake them. People also put down the Monkees. Yeah. There was a lot of great stuff they did. They had an album called Pisces Aquarius Capricorn. On that was a song that Mickey Dolenz played a Moog synthesizer on. Now, did it hit? No. But it was on the song, and it was called Daily Nightly back in 1967. So, the first pop song to use one of these Moogs, again, when you say first, you better wink real hard, because someone will probably find something different. But here's the monkeys. And this is how it was used in a pop song here on Rock School.
right, coming out of the monkeys, I think I mentioned VCO, but did not tell you what VCO meant. Am I right about that? You're right about that. Voltage-controlled oscillator. Think of it this way. Have you ever had a light that had a dimmer switch on it? Yes. Now, the reason the dimmer switch works is because there is a knob that turns. I've also seen it that you put your finger on the base of the light and it gets brighter or lighter depending on which one you want. Right. Uh, that it, just Believe me, there's a, a, a dial that's being taken care of for you. But as you turn that dial, it, it could be something that turns up the bass. It could be something that turns up the volume. It could be what have you. It's a variable amount of electricity coming in. So you turn up the volume, you're offering more electricity to it. So when I say a variable uh, controlled oscillator, that means I can put a different voltage into it. And by putting a different voltage into it, it will either receive more or less, thus creating more oscillation or less oscillation. Does that make sense? Totally. A little bit? Okay. Let's talk about this 440 that I was talking about. 440 oscillations, if you've ever seen a picture of a, a sound wave, if it goes up and down 440 times per second, that is an A. If it goes up and down 220 times, half of 440, that is an octave down. Whoa. If it goes 880 times, it is an octave up. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is okay. It, is this the reason why you understand music so well? I don't think Scales, so. things like that? No? I don't think okay. so. Okay. <laughs> well, look, this 440, again, it's known as a Stuttgart pitch, and it is basically how we've all decided, and it's, it's not even anything that's completely agreed upon. Because there are some that say we should be at 432. There are some that say should we, we should be higher. There was this big Nazi thing that it's 440 because the Nazis wanted the music to move a little faster to keep people. I don't know if there's any truth to that. But let's just say 440 is an A. If I take an amount of electricity to make that thing go 440, mm -hmm. I can then turn the electricity to make that thing go 493. That's a B. I can then give it more electricity and make it go to 523. That's a C. If I go to C sharp, D, D sharp all the way up, if I go up to a G, it's 783. Right. And if I go all the way up to A octave, I'm dealing with a octave of A. So from 440, I went to A80, so it is a perfect octave. Now, I, this has nothing to do with our discussion, but there is this, this theory. It's not even a theory. It's fairly fact. Why do some notes sound good with each other and why do some not? It's because mathematically the frequencies go or don't go together. For example, if I play a 440 and a 220 together, they fit. Right. They're exactly one half of each other. Mathematically, they're nice. But if I play an A, which is 440, with a C sharp, which is 554, you can tell there's no real mathematical equivalent to them. So they're dissonant. But if I play it with the 440 and then I play an E, which is 659, they that's the fifth. They kind of work together with one of each other. That has nothing to do with it. If you can just take away from this that I can put an amount of voltage into this oscillator, 
It will then create this sine wave, and if I put more, it'll be higher, more, higher, more, higher, more, higher. And one thing that I kept reading about these early Moogs right. was that the oscillators were affected by temperature. Hmm. You would tune them, and then all the lights would turn on on stage. Yeah. They would become warm, right? and they would go higher. They would go higher wow. than what they were tuned for. So they were magnificently temperamental. Okay, what's another song on this Moog synthesizer before we get into how it's used and such? What's another song that people would absolutely know? Do you remember the Rockford Files, the yeah, television show? I do. Remember the theme song? I do. It's played on a Moog synthesizer. Do it. And it goes like this on Rock School. Coming into the first break, talking about the Moog synthesizer. And by the way, if you say Moog in front of me, I'm not going to lose my mind. I mean, most people call it the Moog. It's just that person who goes, Moog, it's pronounced Moog. I love them at a party. Here was the selling point of the Moog, and it also made the machine extremely expensive. It's not just that you hit a button. And then the oscillator threw out whatever sine wave you were talking about. You could take patch chords, literally like guitar chords, and run it through an additional amplifier so the C could be louder. You could run it through envelope generators. So when you put it in, some weird effect would occur to it. So the C would go boop, but the D would go boop and do that kind of stuff. You could run it through noise generators. So when you press the C, it went boop, but when you press the D, it went Wow. That kind of thing. You've probably seen it on, what the heck was it? Um, uh, Bueller. Bueller. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yes. He records himself coughing. Yes. And then plays it. <laughs> now that's digital. Mm -hmm. But the Moog would do, you could do a lot of stuff like that with it. There were noise generators. There were ring modulators. And you would do all of this stuff by plugging it in with with patch cords. It had uh, to be a lot of work, man. It was a lot of work and it was a whole lot of money. And by the way, what was the first song to be a hit that used one of these things? Well, it was back in 1969 by jazz pianist Dick Hyman. He had a song called The Minotaur. And you say, now wait a minute, I know The Minotaur by him. It's all on piano. No, no, no. He redid it on something called the Electric Electrics. And it was the first song involving a Moog 
to crack the top 40. And here's about, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds of it. Okay, great. What was the first hit song that we would know? We'll play it after the break. Who is listening to us? KXTR, KTRL, Stevensonville, Texas, Tarleton University. That'll teach you to run two radio stations back in a minute here on Rock School. Out of the break, we're going to play in just one second. The first the first song that the average music listener would know that became a hit. And again, when I say first, I'm winking really hard. It's the first one I found. It could be that there's one earlier, but this is the first one that I think if I said it to the average rock music listener, they would go, oh, yeah, I know that it suggests and shows when you listen to it it's the solo at the end of the song it suggests one of the downfalls of the Moog synthesizer it could only play one note at a time as a matter of fact Rick Wakeman who was the keyboardist for yes didn't come to the Moog early there's a there's an entire documentary on Robert Moog and he didn't come to the Moog he got one and he gave it away because I want to play chords. I want to do this kind of stuff. And the reaction was one note, one key, and you had to get off that key for the next one to fire. And you'll hear that in this final thing. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, 1970, Lucky Man. It's the solo at the end of the song here on Rock School. white horses and ladies by the score all dressed in satin and waiting by the door Coming out of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and I'm sure you heard there that it was literally one note at a time. And by the way, he was playing a Moog synthesizer. We're not to the mini Moog yet. We're not to the one you see in the Rush videos and not the ones you see in the, the, the Gary Newman in cars. Da-dum, 
Da-dum, da-dum. That's a mini Moog that you're watching. These were the traditional Moogs back in the early 1970s that you would see on American Bandstand and Don Kirshner's rock concerts and what was the one that played all the funk music? Soul Train. Soul Train. So this yeah. guy would be in front of a keyboard and it would be this monstrous patch board above it with wires sticking out in this seemingly weird way. You've seen the old television uh, or the old movies where you would call an operator. Yeah. Hold on, I'll connect you. Right. And she would put all these things and so they had all these patch bays and such and you're looking at it going wow that's impressive when in reality I think it was just a show no come no, on I think it was a show it's like going to see Ingve Mounstein live yeah you know they, don't get me wrong he's got 50 Marshall amplifiers only two of them work uh-uh. the rest of them are for show no we, come on oh, we know it it's a show it's for fun it is the bottom of the hour I'm Joe Burns you I are I am Tammy Burns there you go Let's do seven days, 70 seconds, January 24th through January 30th. Let's see if you can do this Monday. Go. January 24th, 1970, Dr. Robert Moog unveils the Mini Moog synthesizer, one of the first portable synth keyboards at a price of... $2,000. In 1970. Jeez. January 25, 1980, Paul McCartney is released and deported from Japan. You go home. After spending nine days in jail, he was arrested at the airport with 219 grams of marijuana in his luggage. You know what? I, I'm an American. I don't know what grams are. Was that like a suitcase full of pot or was that a thimble? Are you sure you want me to do What's, January the 26th? Um... Look at oh, that. Oh, gosh, yes, I do. Go ahead. You want me to do it? Do it. January 26th. Happy birthday, Eddie Van Halen. 1955. Aww. January 27th, 19, uh, 2018. Huey Lewis loses his hearing before a concert in Dallas, but goes on. Show must go on. He, out of tune, doesn't know what's happening, goes to a doctor's, and is diagnosed with Meniere's disease. It causes his hearing not only to come and go, but he'll think he's on pitch, but he's not. And we luckily got to see one of his last concerts. Right. Go ahead. January 28, 2001, Ray Charles sings America the Beautiful at Super Bowl 35 in Tampa. Aerosmith, NSYNC, and Britney Spears are the halftime show. January 29th, 1969, the Glenn Campbell Time Hour debuts on CBS television. And I'm going to tell you what. I don't know how they handle kids today, but this is the way my mother handled me. I want to watch the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour. Leave this house. I don't care if you sit on the stoop and kick rocks. Get out of the house for an hour. That's how much she loved Glenn Campbell. January 30th, 1994, Natalie Cole sings the national anthem Super Bowl. Halftime is the country folk, I guess. Clint Black, the Judds, and Travis Tritt. That's country. When disco came out, so did the Moog synthesizers. And my assumption is you know so many songs with the Moog, you just assumed it was just about anything. The one I'll bet you know is 1977, and I'm going to guess this was a mini Moog. And that, that's just my guess. I'm not sure. Donna Summers, I Feel Love. That... It's so perfect. It's computer-level perfect. I'm guessing it's a mini mode. Just Donna Summer here on Rock School.
Coming into the second break, I mentioned the Minimoog. And again, how do you say Minimoog without thinking of Austin Powers? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) Nigel Powers, meet Minimoog. And this oscillated sound comes out of it. Oh, I thought I smelled cabbage. In 1970, it says 1970, but it was 71 that the song started coming out. I get it, it was released in 70, but when you look at a song in 70, like Lucky Man, I don't think that was on a mini mode. Mm-hmm. I think that was on something else. When you look into what he, Robert Moog, said about the mini Moog was that he wanted to make it, quote, idiot-proof. All the patches and all that were gone. Cool. It was the idea of hit a button, it produced a sound. And everything was attached to a little bay. And if you look over at my Yamaha over there, it's the same thing. Right. It's all buttons and such on top of it. And that's what the Mini did. It was also a very short keyboard, which drives me crazy about that Yamaha. I don't know what the number is, but look at this one here. This is 88 keys. When you look at that one, I'm going to guess it's 57. 60 keys, and you think to yourself, what does it matter? I find myself always down in the low end of it. Yeah. Because you get up too high. And it's right. A, and there's probably a way to tell it digitally to, you know, move up the keyboard, but I don't know. Hey, I don't all, know I can, all I can think about right now is that you played disco on yeah. rock school. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Slap the, yourself. Dude. The Mini Moog was created all the way through 1981 until he started to play around with other things. Why? His patents ran out. Mm-mm. I'll tell you what that's all about. Who's listening to us? K W I T K O J I, Sioux City, Iowa. See what I did there? What did you do there? I took the two. I took the two uh, affiliates that had double call letters. Yeah. And I put them together. You did that. I'm a genius. Aww. Back in a minute here on Rock School. out of the break talking about what is now the mini moog have you ever seen a person play something called the keytar it is a it's a keyboard that you hold like a guitar your right hand is on the key and then your left hand is sort of a plug sticking off the top of it i have seen that yes and what that plug has on it is either one or two little rollers you can see the roller right there on that one yes it's got in here's two rollers under here which you can't see but what it did was it allowed you to once you struck the key and the oscillator fired out the tone mm-hmm. you could roll that little thing and it would either decrease or increase the amount of voltage going in into it. So a piano, you know when you hit the note, bing, that's it. Right. You can make it stop or you can make it continue by pressing the pedal. Whereas this oscillator, what happened was you had a little roller on it. So you could press it and it would go and come back up, which made it kind of equivalent to a guitar. 
which is why the organ got so popular in rock and roll. A guitar, you keep hitting that note, it's going to keep playing. Whereas a piano couldn't do that. It only had a lifespan. Mm-hmm. But an organ, yeah. as long as you held that key, Lay on it. it kept going. That's uh... why the organ became sort of the rock the rock musician's uh, equal. So here comes this Moog. And when they're playing on it, it's the same note all the time until this little roller was put into it. And you say, okay, what's a song that played around with those rollers? I'm going to play something for you called Space Race by Billy Preston. Mm -hmm. So when you listen to it, it's not... The notes are going... He's playing to them like it was a guitar. Oh, Preston was amazing. Amazing! Here you go, it's Space Race on Rock School. Coming into the last break, you said that the 70s were filled with this stuff. It became sort of the keyboard sound of progressive rock. Yes, had it. Uh, Rush brought it back when Getty Lee decided to get into keyboards and such. When you're listening to, like, subdivisions, the very low notes that he plays, you you watched him. Right. He had a... He had his bass, and then he would play on the keyboard, but you could still hear the bass. It's because he was tapping on bass pedals. I think I've heard they were Taurus bass pedals, but there's also Moog bass pedals like that. So he's playing the bass with his foot and something else on the on the keyboard, but that sound is the Moog. I talked about him, Moog, losing his patents. They expired in the 1990s, and what he would have to do is reinvent analog synths, and it came out as the Voyager, the Grandmother, and the Matriarch. Those are the three that were out in the late 1980s and 1990s. But look, time marches on and we all get older. In 2016, Moog releases the Moog Model 15 app. Because no one wants to play the machine anymore. They want it to be an app. It's a software emulation of the Model 15, and you can have it for both Mac and PC. Uh, I didn't buy that. In the world of digital, there are these things called VSTs, and honestly, I I don't remember what what it stands for. V is probably virtual. But you can download them for free. There are entire websites dedicated to this, and it's this idea of bringing down... This VST, which is a collection of samples. So if I want a banjo, I get a VST of a banjo. If I want a flute, I get a VST of a flute. Drums, guitar, what have you. And I have downloaded at least three different Moog synthesizers. Because I want it deeper, I want it taller, I want control over it, I want all these different things. And it's not anything that Moog had anything to do with it. He created, number one, a scientifically amazing thing. But the fact remains, it was a known 
sound. Did he make money off of oh, it? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. The problem is you can't copyright a sound. Yep. So people could make things that sounded like Moog and give them away for nothing. And because I'm shallow and self-centered, I'm one of the guys that downloaded those things. Ooh. Yes, Ooh. yes. All right, I got to play one to get us out of here. Stop talking about the uh, the wonderful Moog. Synth- oh, Parliament. Parliament Funkadelic. Yeah. There was a guy named Bernie Worrell. And when you listen to this, it's again, it's the solos. Bernie Worrell used to use, and I, I'm sure I've read what the name of it is, but it's a keyboard, and the keyboard itself tripped Moog synthesizers. And you said synthesizers, like many. Yes, he would have at least two tied together. So when he hit the button, the two synthesizers would fire at the same time. Sweet. And you would get these weird stereo effects. So when you listen to the song, Flashlight, it it is when you hear the Moog come in, it's two Moogs being played at the same time. I mean, you give a musician anything. You know, you, you work this by hitting it with a stick. It's only a matter of time before he or she said, I wonder if I hit it with a dog. That's right. What it would sound like. If I <laughs> threw it down the steps, what would it sound like? We're going to find a way to do something with it. So, well, there you go. That's a little discussion of the Moog, what it is. And when you hear it now, you know it. I'm Joe Burns. I'm Tammy Burns. The end. Class is dismissed.